0: February of 2022, there were protests across Canada against COVID-19 vaccine mandates. This included an occupation of Ottawa, Canada's capital city. During the media coverage of the events, it became clear that many of the protests and perhaps members of the public were unclear about what are the roles the government plays, what laws are being used, and how... The canadian government work this started a conversation on twitter with my friend carrie during that conversation carrie asked me peter how does the government work opened up a broader conversation with carrie's friend dia i'm a retired lawyer with interest in government i thought i could help this is where our podcast comes from i'm hoping to help carrie dia and others that are interested understand how the government works, and how it impacts our lives. Welcome to our podcast, Peter, How Does the Government Work? Hi everyone, I'm Peter Tong. Welcome to another episode of Peter, How Does the Government Work?
1: Hi Kerry, how are you? I'm great, Peter. What do you mean? This isn't the discussing the Paralympics corner, because that's what, our, that's what our pre-recording looked like. Happy Paralympics, everyone.
0: Absolutely. And hi, Dia. How are you?
2: I'm good, Peter. How are you? Very how much doing? excited and looking forward to our chat today.
0: I think it should be fun. Today, we're going to talk about levels of government and sort of use that as our base as we move forward with other with other episodes. So, Maybe just to get us started, I'll start at the bottom, and that's municipal governments, and those are the ones that we know as our city governments. Carrie and I live in the city of Winnipeg, so you'll probably hear me refer to them and and the kind of structures that they use. so in most cities um, the a the residents of the city will elect a mayor and a number of councillors, and the mayor and the elected councillors will be responsible for the functions of that municipality. And like in other uh, elections in Canada, councillors run in particular wards or ridings, and you will elect your representative for your area of the city. The mayor is elected directly. You have a vote for your councillor and a vote for your mayor. In most municipalities, these people that are running for office are probably members of political parties, but they don't run under a party system. So, what does a municipal government typically do? Things like public transit garbage collection, water and sewage, emergency services, including the fire and the police. And in many cities, that's the biggest part of a city budget is those kinds of emergency services. They're responsible for things like building permits and city parks and recreation facilities. Now, what's interesting is the only way that municipalities typically have to raise money is through property taxes so that's a lot of things to do with a relatively small income base so how do they make it work well as we'll see from our discussion it's sort of it's sort of a although we're starting to talk about the lowest level of government you'll see that it becomes kind of a top down structure The province has more money than a municipality, so a municipality may ask the province for assistance on larger projects or larger things. The federal government typically has more resources than a provincial government, so the provincial government may rely on the federal government for funding of certain aspects of the work that they're responsible for. So it's sort of a a back and forth in the negotiation depending on what's going on. If all of a sudden, three bridges need to be replaced in your city, it's unlikely that that's going to be paid for from your property taxes. It becomes a shared project between the federal, provincial and municipal government.
1: And that's why if say we wanted a, I always use the example of monorails because um, I always just think of the Simpsons episode about the monorail, but that would be, so if say Winnipeg decided they wanted to buy a monorail or build a monorail, which I think that they should, I think it'd be a great, Addition to our public transit infrastructure, but they probably wouldn't be able to fund it themselves. So they would have to look to the provincial and probably federal governments to build us a monorail.
0: Exactly. And often what happens in those cases for those kinds of big projects is yes, we will provide you funding to build that big project. But then once it's built, you're responsible for maintaining it. So you get all the ongoing costs of making sure that the monorail runs and you know all of that stuff so so not only do municipalities need to be aware of the amount of money that's being sent, spent to build the project it's how many millions of dollars do we need each year after that to keep the thing running because it becomes their responsibility you often see that in cases like Canada Games Stadium so it's a federal provincial and municipal joint thing to put on a Canada Games in some city in Canada and they build a stadium or they build some facilities and then when the Canada Games is over they're like, thank you very much City of Winnipeg, you will now maintain this in perpetuity that we built for you. Right, so they offload the, the sort of ongoing costs. Which Got it. could be an interesting challenge. The next level of government in some areas of the country is called a regional government and that's where a number of smaller cities will band together to elect a regional government to who will administer some of the functions for all of those cities now the the region that i'm most familiar with is the region of durham which is a group of cities around toronto and there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten cities that make up the region of Durham. Uh, probably the best known ones being uh, Oshawa and Pickering. And so what they do is they elect a regional council and a regional chair. And again, they're both you know, sort of elected in in separate streams. And depending on the region, they may take on different sort of larger, broader tasks. In Durham, they take care of child care services, economic development, emergency preparedness. They do, at the regional level, the garbage and recycling in Durham. They do seniors' care. They also are responsible for the paramedic services, some of the police services, sewer and waste management. So it's a lot of things that in large cities would be taken care of the city by itself, but they move it up to a regional level because of economies of scale. If one, if one administrator is doing the wastewater and sewage for all of those areas they're probably saving some money. I think that's kind of the impetus behind behind regional governments. It does, however, for people that, that live in those areas, I think it creates a big challenge about who's responsible for what. Because if, you know, the, if I live in one of those cities and my sewer is backing up into my house, do I call the city? Do I call the region? Do I, you know? So I, I think... Part of the challenges for these regional governments is to get the message out, uh, we're important because this is what we do.
2: I was just thinking about sometimes how calling 311 is so unhelpful. Yes. Especially in those I'm actually live also in one of these structures and there are times when they're like, No, that's the region, no, that's the city, no, that's somebody else's responsibility, or like they just have no idea. So um
1: is this like when you were trying to call your library uh a few months ago and and everyone was just directing you to different places even though you were just trying to call the library to find out if they had a specific book
2: um yes and no except for that i, I can say that my city can um, actually take full blame for that one so that was actually just fully the libraries at the fully the full city level but, like, sewer um, waste management, as Peter said, like, there's some stuff Chila around trees. Like, sometimes the tree is the city, but depending on what type of land the tree is on, sometimes it's the municipality oh or the God. region. And it's, like, just a hot mess express. Mm-hmm. Like, tomorrow we're supposed to get, like, crazy high winds. Um, and, like, other than that down the hatches, like, I'm sure there'll be stuff that's partially the city and partially the municipality um, that we're going to have to um, deal with. So all the the fun times. I I guess I had a question for Peter kind of on that front. Are there any hard and fast rules about, is it size or just economic on um, when, or maybe it's just historical on when it might just be a city or when they might actually amalgamate or be part of a region? Are there any like real structural guidelines to that?
0: I haven't been able to find any. I really think it's when a when a group of of cities or a group of towns say this function that we have is too big for us. Let's let's kind of band together and try and make it better. I couldn't. I've done a little bit of looking. I couldn't find any sort of structures that said you can only form a region when it's this or there's these parameters. I think it's really what functionally works best and. We're not even going to get into the city of Ottawa and how they have two other, because they have a federal agency that oversees all the sort of parliamentary sites and all that, and they have a regional government and they have a municipal government. I'm not going to go down that path too far because it gets really complicated and it really gives kind of a one-off.
1: Well, I mean, and we saw the confusion that existed at that level uh, during the occupation of... Ottawa and that you know even the people who are running the show there uh, may experience some confusion about who is meant to do what because nobody nobody wants to take responsibility until they have to
0: right yeah and, and 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 that's it because I mean the city of Ottawa police are responsible for sort of the policing of the city, but the Royal Canadian Mounted Police are responsible for the policing and security on Parliament Hill, and, you know, and, 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 and. So, well, I I see why governments like another layer of government in there. I'm not sure that it helps citizens understand who does what and who's helping them out. Right. <laughs> So then there's that, and then and then I guess we get into sort of the, the more familiar. For those who aren't Canadian or listen from this podcast from away, um, Canada is divided up into ten provinces and three territories, sort of the equivalent to U.S. states for our U.S. listeners, and each province or territory has a group of responsibilities that they have constitutionally. Now, I should... Explain that, with two exceptions, the provincial and territorial governments work on a party system. So, what that means is, Pete, your representative at the provincial level is, is a member of a particular political party. They represent that political party, and you rep, you elect a representative in your area. In our case, in Canada, they're called ridings. So. There's a number of people from a number of political parties running in your riding, and somebody gets elected. Now, each of the political parties elects a leader. So when we're voting in provincial or most territorial elections, we're not also voting for the leader. The leader is selected by the party. The party who wins the most ridings Who gets the most seats gets to form the government. The leader of that party then becomes what we call the premier of that province. So, and then as I say, there are a number of responsibilities that provincial governments typically have. And those are things like education, health and welfare, natural resources provincial highways the provincial court system, police in the prisons to some level cities play for their own police forces but the province also has has an oversight to the police and they certainly administer provincial prisons, uh, land use, energies, things like that so the, those are the kinds of things that are done at the at the provincial level health is a provincial responsibility. So things like COVID-19 vaccine mandates or mask mandates, which started this whole conversation, are a provincial responsibility. Now, like everything else we're going to talk about in this podcast, it becomes uh, more complicated because although health is a provincial responsibility, a lot of the funding, because it's so expensive, comes from the federal government in terms of health care transfers. So um, it's kind of like, you know, this is your responsibility, but I hold on to the money that's going to help you pay for it. So you know there there must be some influence there right
1: yeah and that kind of goes back to that question that i brought up in in our trailer episode which was generally about you know covid and um you know both healthcare but also the provincial mandates in terms of public health orders and uh you know it was basically well you know why is that guy who was waiting at the Manitoba legislature for Trudeau uh why is he going to be waiting a long time and this is exactly why it's because um it's because we get those transfer payments to pay for expensive things like healthcare and and other things but Justin Trudeau is not you know telling Premier Heather Stephenson and her public health team what to do in terms of the COVID orders. He's concerned with, you know, other things that affect, you know, federal, um, you know, federal jurisdiction, but, you know, is not super concerned with the COVID response in Manitoba, unless we request help from the federal government in that regard. So, you know, that, and this will probably foreshadow into a little bit of what, what you'll talk about, Peter, in terms of what the Federal government is responsible for, but for example, they are definitely responsible for procurement of our COVID vaccines and distributing them to the provinces. But once they get to the provinces, that's out of the federal government's control.
0: Exactly, and and for example, the federal government is responsible for the COVID rules around things like our borders and who's allowed to cross the border and who needs to be tested because the borders are a federal responsibility, right? So there's this crossover, which which adds to the con- confusion as well, right? Or the federal government can set regulations for federally regulated industries like airlines and trains and those kinds of things because those are administered at a federal level so it's it's no no wonder people are, are often confused because our 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 system works because there's this whole, whole sort of whole overlap and back and and forth but you know People get confused about who they should be mad at, I guess.
1: I, I've I've experienced that a lot on the doorstep mm-hmm. during elections, that people don't understand, just like you said, who they should be mad at or who mm-hmm. they should be going to for, for different complaints, problems, concerns, and you know, where just like where things are supposed to end up. And I think especially like you said, because of that, you know, um that that shared administration of things like funding. I, I think it does get really confusing because people do understand that there is some sharing of how things are are funded or administered, but not just who is in charge of those things.
0: Yeah, and a and couple of things that I should talk about while we're still talking about provincial governments is each of the provinces has a Queens representative in the province called the Lieutenant Governor. Now, as laws are passed in the provinces, the way that it works is they go through the provincial legislature. Once they pass the provincial legislature, then they go to the lieutenant government, governor for final approval. Now in Canadian history, that is largely a ceremonial thing and it's approved, but technically it's the lieutenant governor that makes a provincial law a law. And that's a Queen's representative that's that's appointed essentially by a consultation between the provincial and the federal government. And we'll see that same thing happening at the federal level. The other things that I should talk about is the territories are not quite the same. They don't have lieutenant governors. They have commissioners. And it's said very publicly that commissioners is very much a ceremonial role so once laws are passed in the territories, they are laws because there isn't, there isn't a Queen's representative there to, to do the final. So it's kind of one last step for, for the territories. The other interesting thing about the three, ter- the three territories, for those that don't know, are Yukon, the Northwest Territories, and Nunavut. The Yukon operates like the other provinces do. They have a party system. Uh, the Northwest Territories and Nunavut do not. They have what's called direct representation. So you represent, you elect the official that's going to represent you who is not a member of a party and does not represent a party. So once the, I, I, I think in Nunavut, there are 12 provincial legislators, I think. Once those are selected, they amongst themselves select the premier. And the other top officials in the government, the 12 people that are elected are the ones that select the premier out of that group. So Interesting. Yeah, I was
1: just thinking, I was like, you know, because I had read something this morning about how the gover- government, government in the territories functions somewhat differently than it does in the provinces. And I was going to touch on that, which you already have, but I feel like now we're going to have to have some like spinoff episodes with people from from these provinces, like how does the government work in Northwest Territories? Just so we can like understand how yeah. the you know those three governments are actually different. Um, another thing I wanted to touch on because I was you know busy googling this with my mute on is the word lieutenant governor because uh, I was just like, hold on, is that the same as the now I've learned mispronounced lieutenant governor that everyone talks about? And lieutenant is actually pronounced lieutenant. So. I've learned many things already today. Well, it it de-
0: it depends where you are. Technically in Canada by the by the British tradition it's lieutenant in if it was the United States it would definitely be lieutenant.
1: Interesting. See right. I, I googled and uh Manitoba lg.ca says in Canada please note that lieutenant l i e u t e n a n t is pronounced lieutenant and not lieutenant. Yeah. <laughs> so
0: yeah, there you go. There's a the, there's something that that uh, that every everybody learned, but that that's where it comes from. And, and I'm sure over the episodes of the podcast, we're going to keep coming back to because of the British tradition. Like when we talk about why is the House of Commons green, you're going to hear me talk a lot about British tradition.
1: I've read a whole document about that now, and it's fascinating.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay your definition of fascinating and mine might be a little bit different
1: i I was gonna say probably most people might not agree with me about my fascination with this this document i write about why parliament is green but uh thank you thank you ariel for that great document about why parliament is green now it has answered my questions and we will answer this question in the future we
0: will we will get to answering it for sure
2: okay Um, peter i've got a question about these no parties party people in the territories so, are they not connected to a party at all? Is that just what the structure is, or is that the party, rep- like party representation, doesn't really matter?
0: Well, no. As they're running at the, I mean, I, I guess they might be members of a federal party. I don't know, okay. but at the provincial level, they're not members of a party. Parties don't exist in the Northwest okay. Territories, or or Nunavut, at the provincial level, or at the territorial level, to be more accurate.
2: Awesome. Thanks for
1: clarifying. Not a problem. That's super interesting. I just like I I mean I have, I have no I I had no idea about that. And I don't know how I would have ever learned that if it went, weren't for this podcast. So
0: well the, the part of that the, that I really like is I like the fact that the representatives that all have to work together say this is who we want to represent as this premier, right?
1: Right. So it's kind of more like not not non-official, I guess, coalition, but kind of more like that, where they're going to be more apt to work together and negotiate a little bit or, you know, not stick along party lines like we see so firmly in other, other areas of government. Well,
0: you're right. I think it's very much the party line issue. But I also think if you're picking the people that you're going to work with, it would seem that you're probably going to work more closely together. then, then, oh, no, I have to be in the legislature under this premier whose political ideologies I don't agree with, and I'm going to be digging my heels in every chance I get. Does it it actually function that better? Theoretically, that's the way it should be. We'll find out over the course of this podcast whether that turns out to be true or not.
1: Because, yeah, I'm curious about that because, I mean, I think, you know, and this is more you know more directly coalitional but i mean we've seen you know just in say if you look abroad to you know the number of elections that say israel has had in the last you know handful of years it's been very fre- frequent that they're going back to the polls because the coalition forming is not working right so it'll yeah. be interesting to understand a bit more about how how that actually functions as time goes on <laughs>
0: And who knows? We might have a listener write into us and go, that all sounds really good on paper, but actually this is what happens. I mean, I I, I haven't lived in, in the territory so I don't know. Be interesting to see.
2: When we talk about um, coalitions or if we get to coalitions, um, we're uh, up for provincial elections here in Ontario this year. And there's a lot of chatter about um, two parties creating a quasi-coalition um, as a way to oust another party hopefully uh, maybe um, so i'd be curious to know if that's even a thing that can happen because i super don't know but just about if people can work together beforehand to make something like that a reality i will have to do some deep diving because i like zero percent know this answer and remember none of this from uh high school
0: <laughs> um all right let's let me see if i can help with that a little bit can they do it? Sure. There's no, there's not a whole lot of rules. We, we found out in Manitoba when there was a controversial uh, election of a new premier within a party that there's not very many rules that regulate how a party can function and, and, and what, they, what they do. So can parties choose to form a coalition or, or that type of thing? Sure. Um, politically, is it a wise thing to form those sort of coalitions? Well, I don't know. it might be popular in the short term if they get a political result that that the majority of people were looking for. But if I belong to a particular political party and my party forms a coalition that I don't like, does that hurt does that hurt the party? Um, if if they get this really, would they compromise a whole lot of things to form a coalition and then lose anyway? What impact does that have on a political party and its supporters? Canada is a constitutional monarchy. Technically, the Queen, good old Queen Elizabeth II, not only is the Queen of England and the Empress of India and all kinds of things, she's the Queen of Canada. And the Queen, along with the federal government, appoints a queen's representative in canada who it's called the governor general governor general this time around happens to be a woman which is cool and an aboriginal woman but technically the the governor general is the head of government in canada but again that's not exactly how it works we work very much at the federal level on a political party system. And I should start by saying that within the federal system there are sort of two, two houses of government. There is the House of Commons that has 338 seats. And then there's the Senate which is called the Chamber of Sober Second Thought and as we've alluded to in this podcast earlier, if you visit the House of Commons chamber, it's very much green. And if you visit the the Senate chamber, it's all done out in red velvet. And maybe we could talk someday about why that's all, all red velvet. So
1: I would like to I would like to note that because this is an audio medium, when Peter said the uh what was it, the chamber of sober second thought, uh yes. Dia Dia did do a face palm at that at that reference uh so you know because this is an audio medium i thought i would describe that for for the
0: people no i I appreciate that that very very much and i i guess when 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 the senate was formed the idea was it was a check and balance on what the folks down in the house of commons were doing and that's how it got labeled the 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 chamber of sober second thought we we can debate on on whether they're actually that or not. Because the other difference too is, unlike some democracies in Canada, the members of our House of Commons are elected. The members of the Senate are appointed by the government in power. So as you might imagine, the political leanings of the members of the Senate vary from time to time, depending on who appointed who and uh, and all that kind of thing, but the whole idea is they're supposed to have a second look at parliamentary regulation to make sure that they're not doing anything that they I don't know shouldn't be doing or whatever. That's at least it in theory. So, uh, I, I
1: I just was thinking that I think we should uh, change the tagline of the podcast to the uh, Chamber of uh, Sober Third Thought because.
0: We're-
1: <laughs> We we're thinking about these things.
0: Technically, the monarch is the head of state for us, but we have our own constitution and our own laws and government and government structure. So like very, very simply, like at the provincial level, we'll talk about how you pass a law at the federal level. The sort of the last stopping off point is the governor, governor general, she has to sign off on it and that's when it becomes a law. Or if, If the current government decides they want to dissolve Parliament, the Prime Minister goes to the Governor General and says, I wish to, I wish to dissolve Parliament and call a new election. And the Governor General has to say, okay, you're allowed to have a new election.
1: Dia and I very frequently talk about uh, Justin Trudeau walking to the Governor General's house and knocking on the door and saying that he wants an election. Uh, Because, you know, this has happened a few times, but, uh, and, and it seems like it's very regularly looming to be happening so you know we always talk about the 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 walk and the knock on the door even though that's probably not quite how it works out
2: we've also talked about maybe he wished he had saved that last one in his back pocket
0: yeah absolutely (laughs) i I mean for for those that haven't followed the last canadian election is we had an entire election at the federal level a few months ago and out of the 308 seats there was a two-seat shift for all of the you know, ninety days worth of election, so uh, we didn't we didn't get very far for for, for all for all, all of that. And it was a very
1: expensive democratic experiment. <laughs> ex-
0: exactly, and I guess the other the other piece to it too is we talked about coalitions. The party that wins the most seats or the most ridings gets to form the government. Whether they have more than half of those seats or not, they get to form the government. Now, what could happen in a very interesting case is two or three parties might be able to form a coalition and actually have more seats than the party that has the most seats. So they could then technically go to the governor general before the new parliament is constituted and say, I want, I want a chance to form the government because I have more seats than the party that won the most seats.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: Now, I don't think that I know there's been discussions about it. I don't think it's actually been done, but that's the kind of thing that would go to the governor general and the governor general would say, okay, either this party leader will form the government or, this party leader of this coalition will have an opportunity to form the government.
1: Got it. So going back a little bit to the governor general, and like I think we kind of touched on this. Um, what is their actual role other than, I guess, kind of overseeing things when there's not a government currently sitting like during the, the writ period, for example, right. what else do they do? Well,
0: um, like, like the left-handed governors, there's a large ceremonial role. The, left, the governor general will, will represent Canada around the world as the, as the Queen's representative and a representative of the country. Um, particular governor generals often take on um, um, projects that become part of the. I was going to say the reign, it's not the reign. As, as part of the their, 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 their peri- period of, of being Governor General. Uh, Governor General Johnson, for example, who had been a university professor for many years, was big on literacy, and he went all across the country promoting literacy projects and things like that. His, he has, I'm told he was a very interesting fellow, and I'm told that he had so many books that his grandkids referred to him as grandpa books. So literacy was the thing. So you often often see the regal as they're called, take on those kinds of projects as well.
1: Interesting. So I mean, like, I I guess I I mean, this is probably a very poor comparison, but it's just kind of interesting to me that that's like you know, kind of one of the one of the heads of of uh, I guess appointed government, you might say. I don't know if that's correct at all, but um, you know, it's just like the parallel with their kind of having special projects or whatever kind of reminds me of what the like first ladies sort of have um you know they they'll have their their cause that they really champion and i know that um you know we've we've seen this with you know various first ladies i think like the you know the um uh spouses of the prime ministers have also kind of had these projects because they are in a little bit of a more public role they can you know kind of champion these causes whatever they are interested in and hopefully bring a little bit of attention to them so that's interesting though that the Governor Generals also kind of have those projects.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So that was my short answer because I, to, be, to be honest, I I don't know all of the roles of the of the Governor General. Those are those are sort of the biggest ones that I know about. But largely, totally those are their their two roles to sort of over, over oversee the, the the federal government process, and then they have their own their own both both sort of. Uh, uh, public promotion projects and other things that uh, that they try to bring forward. That's deep because if you're if you're Governor General, um, you you you're, you're given military rank and as part of your uniform system, you have military uniforms and stuff. And the Governor General will co- come to Remembrance Day ceremonies all done up in 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 military uniform, and so that there's a whole lot of British tradition. that's, sort of throws over that
1: sounds like we need a whole episode about the governor general
0: yeah we probably do if we're going to do it justice to be honest
1: interesting so i I think you know bringing it you know you mentioned the military so bringing it back to kind of our, our original scope of this and i think these these kind of sidebars into how things actually work are super useful to kind of put in here within the context but um so what is the federal government in charge of like what do they do we kind of mentioned the borders we mentioned transportation um but did we did we do a rundown in terms of like the list kind of like we did with the other ones or
0: we didn't and thank you for the reminder because that's that's important so sort of the rundown of the list at the federal government level are 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 sort of the big cross-country things you might think about national defense foreign diplomacy international trade citizenship indigenous affairs postal services banking, uh, criminal law, employment insurance, the census, taxation, uh, national transportation and safety. So that's where we talk about federally regulated airlines or federally regulated industries, sorry, like the airlines, like the rail system. And when you think about it, it makes sense that they would be regulated at the federal level because you could imagine if, 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 if the airline industry was regulated provincially, well, it takes an airline, you know, eight minutes to cross a province. So how do you regulate all that? So that's the right. federal level. <clears throat> and those are the kind of things. Um, criminal law is a big one that, of course, that I was involved in. So in Canada, if you're charged with a crime that's all regulated under federal law or what we call the criminal code of Canada, which means um, regardless of where in the country you've committed a crime, the penalties that are associated with that crime and the process that decides that you're going to have a penalty are consistent across all of the provinces and that's why it's at a federal level.
1: And that would also, uh, because you you mentioned like national defense and things. And as we mentioned in the first episode, very interested in national security. So like that and like, you know, CSIS, which is, you know, kind of colloquially known as as Canada's spy agency, um, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. Like that would be federal, uh, the RCMP who, you know, do some of that sort of work as well would be federally regulated. Although Dia and I did do some Googling about how that works, seeing as there are some, uh, you know provincial um the jurisdictions? Provincial, yeah, or... provincial branches of the there are some provincial branches of the RCMP that I guess, is that how that works?
0: No, not quite. There are there are there are there are provincial Royal Canadian Mounted Police police stations and offices and things like that in each of the provinces, but it's all federally regulated.
1: Got it. And and that's basically there if you don't have a municipal police force or a provincial police force, as is the case in
0: that, that's Ontario. Great. Yeah, or or if you or places like reserves, because Indigenous great. Affairs is regulated by the federal government. So the policing on on Indigenous reserves and in those communities are all done by the RCMP. Got it. Right. And there, there's all kinds of other jurisdictional things that we're not going to get into in this podcast. So um, the next thing that I want to talk about in terms of levels of government is another, is another actor who isn't the level of government, and that's the Supreme Court of Canada. Now, the Supreme Court of Canada, as the name suggests, is the, is the highest court in Canada, so they impact our government system by the fact that if you think the government has uh, broken your rights and Canada is regulated by something called the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, that I'm not going to go into any detail on because that's worth about three episodes of this <laughs> podcast, um, you can go to court and these cases usually end up at the supreme court level to say the government has violated my rights under the charter and i i want my right to be protected or i want to be compensated for the way that my my rights were infringed on or whatever so there's there's sort of the something that so so the Supreme Court and the law has a role of sort of keeping the government within, within boundaries, if you will. And we'll talk a lot about this more when we have an episode or two on the Charter. And there's a number of, of challenges to that approach. And one of them is it's a complaint-based system. So the Supreme Court isn't out there overseeing the government to make sure... They do the right thing, they're only going to find out about it if somebody goes through a formal court process to say, my rights have been violated, this is expensive, it's difficult, it's challenging, and it puts a big burden on on the people who who feel that they've been been wrong. So that's that's one thing. But but one interesting thing, and this has come up in Canada just recently. When we don't have a governor general, the chief judge of the Supreme Court becomes the stand-in governor general.
1: Interesting. So, so under oh,
0: wow. under under our constitution, that, that he, the, the 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 chief judge of the Supreme Court becomes the placeholder for the governor general while we go through those periods where one is leaving and another one is coming in and. And, and that kind of thing. So uh, so they they do have a direct connection to the to the federal government, and certainly a lot of influence over it. And that that's sort of my overview of the levels of government and the other and the other players that they're involved in it. And this is sort of the base where we'll spin everything off from where people will see how these levels of government interact and what w- what impact that has on it. <laughs> and uh, for for our listening viewers dia just show, held right, up I'm showing about, all my notes <laughs> held, held up about I don't know five or six or ten pages of notes so. I,
1: I was watching dia <laughs> during this conversation and like I was like I can tell that she's sitting there feverishly writing notes and uh, sure enough there's multiple sheets of, of paper Uh, in front of her. Um, My
2: disclaimer was that I would have many diagrams. I do have doodles of the crown for the queen. I have certainly arrows. I have questionable things about parties. I have a stick character of Doug Ford, for those of you who are interested. Um, And yeah, like I, I think... There's like so many things I did not remember, and I'm gonna to wanna to refer back to. You. So super excited! Um, well, I'll post my notes on Twitter. They might not be legible for anybody.
0: Well, I'm I'm glad that that you you enjoy taking notes, and that helps. But as I'm watching you do this, I'm thinking to myself, Dee, you know this is recorded, right? We can go back. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: yeah, I thought about that like two thirds in my note program, <laughs> my note taking process.
1: I I, w- I will tell. I will I will tell everyone that Dia is also the person though who despite owning a uh, iPhone will go to the concierge at the hotel and ask for a paper map. So Love this is very paper map. This is very on brand the fact that she is using the paper notes as well. <laughs> um so Peter, I have one more question that I think, you know, I don't know if it's going to wrap it up or just give us more questions to ask, but it seems to me that the the jurisdictions of the different levels of government are very clear and they're very well laid out. So why is it that we find that there's so much kind of squabbling between the levels of government about who is supposed to do what? Because it seems like we kind of know that, but it doesn't seem like the elected officials are fully understanding.
0: I don't think it's I don't think it's that the elected officials don't understand. I think it comes back to something that we we talked about earlier where. Um, our our levels of government, regardless of what they say, the responsibilities are on paper, are forced to work together and nothing for financial reasons. As I say, if I'm sitting in Winnipeg and I want to rebuild three bridges, I'm not doing that based on the income that comes in on my city property taxes. I'm going to have to work with the provincial and federal government to make this project happen technically, do the other levels of government have responsibility for it? No. But if they're putting a big amount of money into the pot for the project, they probably have some influencing on how the tenders are done and and whatever else, right? So, well, the lines of authority might be very clear on paper. I mean, it, it does get kind of scrambled and healthcare is the best example. I mean, no province on its own would be able to pay for its healthcare system. It requires it relies on health care transfers from the federal government to pay for very expensive hospitals. So is health a provincial responsibility? Yes. Does the federal government have a large impact on it? Yes. Right. And I and I think that's where all this sort of go you know run runs together and, and Something that we see in many jurisdictions, Canada certainly, is it can become fraught if the the political leanings of the federal government are different from the the, the political leanings of the provincial government, who's trying to get a project done, and all of that ends up playing into it, right?
1: Right. And I think that's probably a lot of what I'm seeing living in Manitoba with a conservative provincial government and, um, you know, their interactions with the liberal federal government is, um, you know, it just seems that there's a lot of, a lot of blame being placed on places that may be justified, maybe not. I'm never, I'm never sure. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, we've seen it illustrated frequently recently in Manitoba with the, The provincial government saying, well, this is our jurisdiction. We don't want your help. And then suddenly wanting the help or when the help is offered, they're like, no, we don't want it anymore because this is our this is our thing that we're doing. Right. So it's uh, it becomes confusing when you're kind of watching it as um, as just an observer on the very outside of what's going on.
0: Well, we saw it in Manitoba recently over over daycare because there was a new federal program to subsidize provinces. For daycare spots so that daycare could be made more cheaply for families. But because those things are provincial responsibility, there was negotiation going back and forth about, you know, what, what are the conditions for us to get this federal money, blah, blah, blah. And I believe Manitoba was the last province to sign the agreement with the feds for daycare money. And a lot of that in my personal opinion, was because I'm going to hold my breath and stop my feet before I make an agreement yep. with a government that's not politically the same as I am.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, we saw that a lot and um, definitely both in Manitoba and 100% in Ontario during the the trucker protests. And I'm trying not to bring all of our examples back to the truckers, but um, or the not even probably truckers um but you know the the thing is that I think like that's like we noted earlier in this episode that you know that's really what kind of started this conversation and brought uh, I it, it made really clear a lot of the things that people don't understand right so mm-hmm. um so yeah I think we did definitely see that as well though the the um overlap of the jurisdictional authorities and how that kind of how that kind of just works in in general and especially when you start looking at um you know yeah just like the different layers of government i had actually in my notes somewhere that didn't seem to sink but uh i had something written about the layer cake of government because it's just like you know you need each layer to support the other ones and maybe maybe occasionally they get along and that's like the icing right
0: (laughs) it's an interesting part about democracies that have all these levels right work together now the one of the things that we didn't touch on and and i i so we have a federal election and all these seats get assigned if the party that has the most seats has more than half of the seats they have what's called a majority government and for a government in power that's a really nice thing because that means they can probably pass whatever legislation they want without working with anybody else So if they get more than half of the 338 seats, then they have what's called a majority government and they only need to rely on the members of their party to pass legislation in the House of Commons. So that's relatively smooth. Now for our last. I
2: was going to ask a fun fact. Does anybody know the last time we had a majority?
0: Yeah, uh, two two elections ago. The first. 2015? The first liberal government was a quite a big majority, actually. So yeah, and and that was you know so then they could sort of move ahead, and they didn't. And then our last two federal governments have been minority governments, where the liberal party has had the most seats, but they haven't had more than half. So for everything they try and do, they have to work with somebody else to get the number of votes they need to get more than half. Which is interesting because, a, it forces various political parties and political actors to work together, and it also can give a lot of influence to smaller political parties, where they might have, you know, the third or or fourth number of seats in the House of Commons, but. They have influence because they will say to the government in power, if you give us this concession or that concession or this policy, we will support the legislation you want to bring forward.
1: Yeah. And that's I mean, and I think a really good example of that is I mean, other than, you know, the older examples involving involving health care and uh, and the Medicare program, but is um uh, you know the, the recent example of that is CERB, the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit, because that probably wouldn't have looked exactly like it did if we weren't in a minority government situation and the Liberals didn't have to kind of negotiate with the NDP to be able to uh, you know, pass that legislation to get people's support. It would have probably looked uh, quite a bit different had it passed in its original form without having to make those uh, concessions or negotiations with another party.
0: Yeah. So when, when, when it's the case that the, the governing party doesn't have more than half of the seats, that's called a minority government. And as I say, there's the advantage of it sort of forces people to work together. There's the disadvantage of they don't always last very long and we end up having elections every, every two years because eventually the other parties get fed up with the party in power and they all band together and they, they, vote, they vote them out. Right? And, and and then, you
1: know, you have the case of uh, the 2021 federal election where, as Peter noted, two seats changed and, it, you know, very, very expensive way to, uh, you know, have two different people join the, join the ranks.
0: Right.
2: We have a whole section coming up on non-confidence, right? Or confidence votes? Oh,
0: yeah, for sure. We'll do that. I yeah. was yeah. on
1: Ariel's list. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and,
0: and, and interestingly, out of... Well, interesting to me, out of the two seats that changed, one of the seats changed has by fewer than 2% of the vote. You know, that's so, uh, I, I mean, from the outside looking in, that sounds to me like nobody actually wanted an election because nothing changed, but that well, might be my I, I take think, on it.
1: All yeah, I, from the hat. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, yeah, I think, uh, you know, having talked to, um, I don't know how many, but hundreds of voters during the last federal election, That was probably the question I got more than any other was, why are we having an election right now? And, and I think, you know, one of the things that we're going to be able to do in a future episode is kind of explain how things kind of start crumbling apart and what triggers an election, because that was, that was a huge question when this last election got called and people were just like, this isn't the time we're in the middle of a, you know, a, a public health crisis blah 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 and it's just like well it's happening so please go vote thank you right but you know it was you know hard to like actually you know explain to people what the whole process was that led to the election happening
0: yeah absolutely and i don't know if we can answer that but it'll probably come up more in conversation i'm sure yes (laughs) absolutely (laughs)
1: Thanks for listening to Peter. How does the government work? You can reach us by email at how at gmail.com or on Twitter at how does G O V T work with questions or corrections, or send us an audio message at speakpipe.com slash. How does G O V T work as we get unconfused together.